Amsterdam Airport, July 2017. Two doctors are meeting, one Irish and one Dutch. We got delayed. I see, but you have your luggage. I'm the Irish doctor. My name is Luke Dillon. You're welcome. Thank you very much. I'm a GP in West Dublin, but Franz Bollen, the doctor that I'm meeting today, he performs some very different functions than I ever expect to as a GP in Ireland. Local anesthesia first, the sleeping drugs, one of four times the anesthetic dose. Then, when you have checked the coma, you apply the paralyzing drug and then you stop. That's what the procedure is. Franz Ballen is a retired GP. During his career, he performed euthanasia on some of his patients at their request. He now acts as a second opinion doctor in such cases. They die mostly within a few minutes, but I always wait 10 minutes and then you listen to the heart and then if there's no sign of life, you tell the family that she died. I first met Franz two years ago when I went on a training weekend to Holland with a group of young Irish GPs. We were there to learn about the Dutch approach to end-of-life care. As part of the trip, Franz explained to us his experience with euthanasia. That part of the trip was the part that surprised me, shocked me even. He had a certain, a certain comfort with talking about end-of-life and, and death that was refreshing, was something that I hadn't heard in Ireland before. 33 years, I think, maybe I've done 60 times euthanasia. Maybe a little more, but I don't know. I didn't count. It's emotional. I always advise to plan the moment of the euthanasia on a day or part of the day which you are free of other duties. You take time. Very often I, I myself apply to euthanasia after my evening meal, just when I have rest and are free from duties. Because this is, well, it's not easy. I think it's more difficult in the first few times than when you are 10 or 30 times, but it is difficult. It is difficult. What Franz told us about euthanasia two years ago sparked a lot of discussion amongst the group of young Irish GPs and got me thinking about what we should be doing for people who suffer greatly at the end of their lives. My own experience of suffering would be with my own father. He passed away nine years ago. He initially was diagnosed with melanoma five years previous to that, and he had two large surgeries on the side of his neck. He recovered quite well, actually, from the initial surgeries, but then the cancer came back four and a half years later in his brain. And then for about a four-month period from Christmas time until he passed away in May, Myself and my mom and my sisters kind of looked after him with the palliative care service at home. You know, that was tough, having witnessed such a giant kind of lose a lot of their faculties. And I think seeing somebody who is such a proud individual go through something like that, it really does give you pause for how you would reflect on your own wishes towards your own death. And I can't answer this for Dad. I don't know what he would have wanted towards the end if if he had the option to end it early. When we visited Holland, I think it really triggered a lot of that with me. And maybe why that resonated with me was, was that I thought, gosh, if, you know, if this was available for, for me and I was suffering to that degree, what would I do? And I think I know what I'd do. 
So I'm back in Holland, this time with a microphone, to hear more about what Franz and doctors like him do. Oh yes, here it is. Kamelenhof. Since euthanasia was legalised in Holland in 2002, slowly increasing numbers are being reported, around 6,000 cases in the last year, which amounts to 4% of all deaths. Okay, we're here. Franz is taking me to visit the husband of one of those people. Mia Huseman. She was diagnosed with a progressive degenerative disease of the brain last year. Hello. Hello. Dr. Luke Dillon from Ireland. Mia's husband doesn't speak English, so Franz translates. Mia got her diagnosis in December 2016. Well, the diagnosis you can also read here. Progressive supranucleaire paralyze palsies, yes? So, losing a lot of physical functions. Progressive supranuclear palsy is a progressive brain disorder which results from the degeneration of cells in your brain that control body movement and thinking. The cause is unknown and there is no cure. She was a very active person. She was working as a social worker. She was the captain of house. A very independent woman with a lot of activities. She was treated with medicines, but due to wrong reactions, like allergic reactions, she couldn't bear it and they stopped the medicines. Her symptoms become more severe, very fast that she could not do things. The disease was taking everything from her away. And then she said, at the third visit from the neurological specialist, she was explained what this disease would give symptoms further, further on losing functions of her body, including the fact that swallowing would be more and more difficult and that she would be depending on gastric tube for feeding. At that time, she said, well, I don't want that. I want euthanasia. It's clear that choosing this route was not easy for Mia or her husband. She wanted a soft dying process, not to be sick, and he and his husband were supporting it, but still a difficult conversation when they get home in the first day that they have to discuss this wish of euthanasia. When the other GPs and I returned from that visit to Franz in Holland two years ago, it sparked a lot of discussion about the subject of euthanasia amongst us back in Ireland. Okay, I'm going to just start recording. So, Dr. Michael Callaghan was one of those people on the first trip, and I've come to chat with him about his thoughts on it. But we get interrupted by his phone. Joanne? I'm very sad. I'm just in the middle of just recording something with one of the lads. It's, he's doing this project and he's asking us all about death. So it's very cheery. Thanks for it. <laughs> Mike's humour might be a bit dark, but it's not an easy thing to talk about. And lots of us aren't talking about it. But maybe in Ireland it's something we need to start talking about. Mike was struck by the difference between Ireland and Holland. 
it was just death discussed in a way that certainly wasn't familiar to me. I think Ireland has a fairly unique relationship with death and I guess a lot of that has its roots in religion. I think we do it quite well in a lot of ways in terms of the community coming around people and the removal and the, the burial and everything like that. But there's definitely a hesitancy there to discuss it and to just be open about it. And that's maybe what was, was shocking about Franz, that he was so able and comfortable to just discuss death. And I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it is a part of life, obviously. It's there for us all. But in just in Ireland, I think maybe there is that hesitancy there. I think sometimes in Ireland, the story of Western medicine in the last few years has been always pushed for a cure. And maybe... That's not always what the patient wants. And I think that we're not so good at having those more difficult conversations. Back in Holland, it's just six weeks since Mia Hoosman passed away at home by euthanasia in the presence of her husband and two sons. The day for having euthanasia, after discussion, she said, well, let's have it now. It was difficult and... But they have kept her close, sitting next to her, and to say goodbye by feeling, by, by holding together, thanking and uh, the GP administered the medicines to get sleep and then to die, and it was very quiet, peaceful. She was content because the road of suffering, we call it, she didn't walk anymore towards death. Yeah. How long have you found her? Intellectual, he says, the whole procedure has been good. The last period of life, Mieke was not the woman he married 60 years before. But in the feelings, of course, he's very sad. The option of euthanasia in Holland is only open to Dutch citizens. When we think of euthanasia, we usually think of Switzerland and an organisation called Dignitas. Since Dignitas began 19 years ago, eight Irish people have died there through physician-supported suicide. Dignitas is one of the only places in the world that will accept foreigners. That's obviously not ideal for people as well because they have to go at an early stage in their disease when they can still swallow because in Dignitas you have to be able to swallow liquid to go through with the procedure. Whereas if you were living in Holland or you're a Dutch person and you were going through with it for whatever reason, they can give it to you through a drip. Euthanasia is completely illegal in Ireland. And to assist somebody in a suicide, including assisting travel to somewhere like Dignitas, could result in 14 years in prison. Having visited Holland, I want to seek out more information about what is currently happening in Ireland in relation to end-of-life care. Palliative care is a relatively young speciality in Ireland, the aim of which is to relieve suffering and improve the quality of life for people who have a life-limiting illness. I've come to Our Lady's Hospice at Harold's Cross. Compared to Holland, palliative care consultant Stephen Higgins finds that there is no great demand for euthanasia in Ireland. Per annum I see about 700 new patients a year and I doubt I would have two or three patients a year who would seriously wish for euthanasia. Oftentimes you'll have patients who are weary with life and will wish it was over. But that's very different from wanting to take something to shorten their lives. Sometimes just to to simplify that, I I use a a simple little thing called the button test. So a a patient might say, you know, I I wish it was all over. And I would say, well, 
Can I just follow up on that with you? If you had a button beside your bed and if you pressed it and it was all over, would you press the button? And very few patients want to press that button. The only time patients have really asked me for death is in a, in a joking context. They just say, oh, you just put me down, doctor. And we, of course, say, no, we're going to look after you. We're going to manage your problems and get you as comfortable as possible. Uh, Mr. Pilo. I've come to see Gabriel Pilo, who is a palliative care patient at the Harold's Cross Hospice in Dublin. In a couple of days in here, I felt much, much better. Even though the pain wasn't gone, the calmness of the place is tremendous. Gabriel discovered that he had bowel cancer earlier this year. Shortly before that, his wife received a diagnosis of dementia. This has all come very suddenly to both of us, really, up to... Last year I was as fit as a fiddle, you know, and uh, I know I had a tumour. I believe it is malignant. I saw the tumour myself when we were doing the colonoscopy, and then the next thing we saw the iceberg that hit the, the Titanic cover, and he said, oh, my God, you know, and it looked to me to be about that size down at the bottom of the bowel. And he also said that there could be uh, secondaries in the stomach. I felt like a guy out in the middle of the Pacific in a little canoe and no paddle, and I just don't know what to do. Couldn't deal with this, couldn't deal with, with anything, and I was getting really, really bogged down. Gabriel had a pressing matter that he decided was his priority. Six years married in September the 2nd, and we have planned a party. I've been planning that for a while, to get all the family, all the we're 22 grandchildren, and, and have an overnight stay, and we'd have a dinner, and a meal and a sing song. The ones that have a few drinks can have a few drinks and the ones that don't, the little ones have plenty of space to play in. He spoke to his consultant about the tumour that they had found in his bowel. I said to him, I only want to get a September and he said, I'm telling you now, you won't get up to the end of May. <laughs> so that didn't leave me much. Gabriel had surgery almost immediately to remove the tumour. It's now August and he is focused on staying alive until September. I just wanted to get to the state where we could enjoy our 60th anniversary and uh, get that over with and see can we get to 75. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. <laughs> In Ireland, it is a patient's prerogative to say whether or not they would like to continue with treatment. Within oncology, there's a great debate about the administering of futile treatments. Palliative care consultant Stephen Higgins considers questions about how far to go with care. We sometimes waste patients' time and precious resources giving treatments that will not work, that there is no realistic prospect that they will help, but we still do it. I think hospital medicine generally is about doing everything you can do, whereas palliative medicine is often about realising there are things that you can do, but maybe you shouldn't do them. According to an Irish Hospice Foundation survey, three-quarters of people would like to die at home while only a quarter of people do, with most people in Ireland dying in an acute hospital or a nursing home. Gabriel Pilo now finds himself in the position where he is considering the conditions he would wish for at the end of his life. I wouldn't like to be at home if it's going to cause an unholy amount of problems. I'd rather they be somewhere like here. The way I figured it, I'm 86, and if I had cancer and they did chemo on me, for three or six months. That would be possibly all my time gone. And in that time, I'd be sick all the time anyway. So I said at the outside, 
I didn't see the value and nobody could show me the value of it. The palliative care could keep me in an active state for a while. Wouldn't it be better doing that? You know, I prefer to have a bit of life while life is there than, than be feeling sick and oh, the way I saw my friends go, you know, and I wouldn't be too happy and they weren't too happy, I can tell you. Gabriel has weighed up his options and his priorities and has decided to turn down further treatment. I asked him how he would deal with the prospect of future suffering. If you gave me a choice and you're telling me I'm going to be very sick for the next six weeks and I'll be in dreadful agony and I'll have no quality of life and I can't read, I know what I would like to do. But but to be able to do that would probably be impossible. And that would be take a trip, Yodelahidi, in Switzerland to the mountains, to die with dignity. I'd hate to be lying in the bed, and I've seen people do it, you know, and absolutely just lie there roaring and I can't see why. You wouldn't do it. If you were a dog, you wouldn't do it to them. See, I wouldn't do it to my dog anyway, if he was in that, that, that state. I think the single thing that people fear most is pain. Stephen Higgins, palliative care consultant. Particularly if they have cancer. And I think there's no doubt that in years gone by, certainly people have had horrendous pain, poorly treated and died very badly. If someone comes to me and pain is the problem, I have a wide array of treatments and interventions that will help. So we can't make everybody pain-free by any means, but we can help everybody and most people we can greatly help. So I think pain, although it's the most feared, I think it's one we can do a lot about. In Holland, a quarter of the people who are approved by the governing body for euthanasia actually choose not to go through with the procedure. Nikki Cronin is another GP who was on that first trip to Holland. Sometimes just knowing that it can happen is enough for the patient. It shows it might be a lot more fear about what might happen rather than what actually does happen. I suppose... What we're talking about is suffering and how do we deal with suffering in Ireland. And from what I've seen in the palliative care service, there's, there's a host of things that we can do to help people with suffering. But the reality is, is that we are leaving some people behind. As we've been hearing the High Court will deliver an important judgment today in a challenge to the law banning assisted suicide. In recent years, two cases have appeared before the courts that have brought Irish law in this area into sharp focus. Described herself as being in constant pain and having lost all dignity as she is entirely dependent on others. And she says she's at the end stage of this disease. She does not want to live the rest of her life. In In 2013, Marie Fleming unsuccessfully challenged Irish law on assisted suicide in the High Court. And in 2015... Gail O'Rourke was acquitted of assisting her friend Bernadette Ford to die. The guilt I would feel is if Bernadette was now confined into a nursing home or a care home where she was going through the indignities that she wanted to avoid. Both Marie Fleming and Bernadette Ford suffered from multiple sclerosis, or MS. Kate. Hi, I'm Lou. I've come to meet someone suffering from the same disease. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Lovely to meet you. I brought you something small. Kate Tobin, who lives in Wexford. Kate was first diagnosed with MS six years ago. How are you today? I'm all right today. It was a pretty bad night. Kate lives alone with her dog Bruno for company. Hi, yeah, Bruno. Who is keen on the microphone. Next to you. Is that yeah. okay? Hello. Bruno! He has his med five minutes and then he comes down. 
Every part of Kate's life is difficult because of her condition. Even a drink of water is impossible without thickener. What have you got there? Thickened cranberry juice. How is it? It's like an acquired taste, but I've acquired the taste because I have no other choice. Kate's quality of life has declined since her illness has started to progress more dramatically in the past few years. At the moment, it's not the best. The fatigue will just take over my body. I'm in pain. My muscles sort of tighten up and ache. So many of the things that those of us who are healthy take for granted make daily life a huge challenge for Kate. And her suffering is not just on a physical level. A lot of it is the loss of my independence. My carers have to help me brush my teeth because my hand hasn't got the strength. I was an avid letter writer, but even to write an email might take me three or four hours. Kate has two carers. She gets just 12 hours of care a week. They help her with things like showering and cooking, and she hugely values the social contact. They start their time with me by sitting down and making a cup of tea or coffee. We'll share jokes, and our big thing is to have coffee and a biscuit and watch the Jeremy Kyle show in the morning. Just going, where did he get these people from? And we laugh about it. Kate spent most of her professional life working in Britain as a nurse, including time as a palliative care nurse. So I knew what my disease entailed. And then as it slowly started to deteriorate, I thought, I can't live like this. I thought at that stage... When my illness gets too bad, I want to call a halt. Mm. I want to die. Palliative care consultant Stephen Higgins' patients are reaching the end of life, but he sees many alternatives to euthanasia. I think it comes back to people wanting to have control at the end of life, and euthanasia does give you a control specifically of the timing, but I think a lot of that control can be gained by advanced care planning. Sometimes what we see are people where no decisions were made and they end up in a situation where perhaps they shouldn't have gone to hospital, perhaps they shouldn't have had antibiotics. Very often those bad situations that people end in were actually preventable, but the key to it always is talking about it. Those are just sometimes difficult conversations and sometimes people avoid them and avoid them and avoid them and it's too late and now they're in this situation. But I don't think euthanasia is the easy fix to that though it is alluring. An Advanced Health Care Directive is a legal document that informs family, friends and your doctors of your wishes for treatment in the event that you can no longer communicate them yourself. Though Kate Tobin cannot avail of euthanasia, she has made some big decisions about her care as her health declines through an Advanced Health Care Directive. I'm adamant. I don't want any medical care and I have said no to artificial feeding. If I get ill in hospital and I get an infection, 
I have written down that I don't want antibiotics, which means that the infection will kill me. But at least my death certificate will say complications of MS and not suicide. The measures that Kate has taken in forward planning are very rare, Stephen Higgins finds. I probably wouldn't see two of those a year. If people don't realise or don't acknowledge that there's a time when they won't have that voice, well then that time comes and they can't take part in that decision. Whereas if they've spoken before, it's, it's coming from the past, but their voice is still there. Kate is deeply religious and at one stage was in a religious order. She still has many friends and acquaintances from her spiritual life. I was getting loads of novenas and it was all cure, cure, cure. And I have to say to people, I cannot be cured. I am now dying. Kate is able to reconcile her religion with the idea of assisted suicide. There's all these people saying, if you die before your time, you won't get to heaven. But I believe I'm doing my purgatory on earth so that when I get to heaven, St. Peter will say, welcome my child, you have suffered enough on earth. Go sleep in the arms of Jesus. In Holland, the criteria for euthanasia being carried out is based on a concept of unbearable suffering with no prospect of improvement. Despite euthanasia being widely available in Holland, Franz Bollen has seen many patients choose to die naturally. Some people, they choose for it, to live as long as possible. They do every measurement, laying in bed with gastric tube, artificial feeding, a lot of medicine, so they die at the end naturally. So it's very individual. So which is unbearable suffering for 10 persons, you have also 10 persons which is same suffering. They never will ask euthanasia. That concept is completely different for every person. So I might say to myself, witnessing something from the outside, gosh, that really looks like unbearable suffering to me. But that person might not feel that within themselves. And that's really the only opinion that matters is the person themselves, you know, because nobody else can tell you what unbearable suffering means to you. And I think, unfortunately, I think that's where you run into difficulty with euthanasia because some people can just find life to be unbearable in the absence of a, a disease that you can see. And so I think that that's where you run into difficulty because you're talking about a, a subjective entity and then you're trying to judge it in an objective way. And I think that's why there's such a hazy area. One of the cases that Franz brought up was the case of a young mother of four whose youngest child was five years old and she asked for euthanasia. She had a depression of more than 16 years. When she was a teenager, she started with depression. She had a severe youth where she was abused and she said to me, I have four children. My youngest child is now five years old and I want your help for euthanasia. I want to die. So what to do? In my opinion, I always said, I always want to help you. But this is difficult questions. So I said, I want to help you. But this problem is difficult because you are young and normally you have the expectations of your life is at least 
50 years more. But I want to help you. Franz told her he would only help her on the condition that she try treatment with a psychiatrist first. She was treated for more than two years. He decided that there was no possibility to diminish the suffering from this woman. So she came back. She, you promised me. And yes, I made the promise. And I felt that it was right. But it is difficult. So I decided to ask second opinion, so a second opinion doctor. And he was agreed that this was unbearable suffering. However, this was in the early 1980s, before euthanasia was legal in Holland. So we decided to give her the medicines, but secretly. So I went to the pharmacist and he prepared all the medicines. And I explained what to do. You send the children away, you are alone at home, and you stay at home, and you phone me when uh, you think you die. So I, I gave them the medicine before the weekend, and a man in the morning, she was in coma still. That's the problem. But you will die in coma. But it can take days in when you're a vital person. So I had to apply the potassium chloride. But it was, that, that was, felt very difficult. But I did, and I felt it was good. But I still applied the normal death. In the early 1980s, many GPs in Holland recorded a natural death for euthanasia cases. This was for fear of being prosecuted. Later, an agreement with the police and the authorities was reached and a local protocol was agreed before euthanasia was made legal in 2002. Franz recorded on the death certificate that it was a natural death. No one was asking. And the husband was also not telling to other people that it was a natural death. It's interesting, that's the one case out of 60 that he's performed that was for mental illness. And I think we as a group of young doctors found that quite shocking. And it's interesting, I think, that he brings it up because, I mean, I can't speak for him, but I wonder, does he, did that one stay with him more than the others? In Holland, the issue of carrying out euthanasia in a case of mental illness is probably the one that caused the most amount of discussion amongst our GP group. Dr Nikki Cronin felt this crossed a line for her. I think that one struck a chord with lots of us because you certainly feel with mental health that things can change. I suppose I would ask him, would he feel that if the advances in medications, you know, if down the line, would he wonder if something new had come out? Could that have changed the outcome for that lady because she was so young? Like a change in circumstance, maybe if one of her children were sick or down the line, if possibility of becoming a grandparent would that have changed kind of how she felt so I think that one I I thought a lot about. The interesting thing about the trip to Holland was while they had such a comfort in talking about the dying process and talking about people's wishes there were other elements of what was going on that made me quite uncomfortable as well. Goedendag. Franz brought me to meet a lady who's part of an organisation who provide information for people who want to complete suicide who aren't necessarily suffering with a terminal illness. These are just people who want to die. If you don't have sufficient criteria, so you can't be helped by a doctor, what do you do? This is Dinica Lillifeld. She's a retired medical doctor and now works with the Dutch organisation De Stichting Einder, or the Horizon Foundation. Then you have the self-euthanasia, we call that. Daily I get seven emails and they ask, I want to die, please help me. Most of the time I give them information. 
The organisation began in 1996 in response to a large amount of people committing suicide in a violent way. In this book, you can read what is the process if you want to die in a human way. And it tells about three possibilities. We have also with a video where you can see how you have to do that. Exactly what kind of medicines do you need? How do you take them? It's also written very clearly. You can't find them on the internet because that's dangerous. I think that's why euthanasia is such a difficult topic to talk about because you inevitably end up talking about this slippery slope argument that where do you, where do you draw the line? So I think it's definitely not clear cut. Palliative care consultant Stephen Higgins believes there is no safe way to bring in euthanasia in Ireland. I think the slippery slope is real and the proponents of euthanasia would say, look, it should be brought in, but with safeguards. But the boundaries that are talked about and the definitions that are talked about would not address some of the most difficult cases that we hear about. Whereas if you were to bring in euthanasia but widen the definitions such as to include those cases, well then you include a myriad of other cases. And I think there is no doubt but that many people would feel a pressure that euthanasia is the thing they can do for their family or perhaps for society, that their contribution will be to go out quickly. Now at an advanced stage of her MS, 51-year-old Kate Tobin has considered all her options, including travelling to Switzerland, but she would need assistance to travel to Dignitas. If a relative came back without me, they could be charged for assisted murder. I don't want any of my family to suffer that. Kate would like to avail of palliative care, but at the moment in Ireland, providing care for someone with chronic care needs as opposed to palliative care needs can be where problems occur. Because I don't have a specific lifespan, I'm not entitled to go into a hospice and give me a better quality life. They've been controlling my pain they had to go for something like morphine. I wouldn't mind at all. When we visited Holland, one of the things that we were debating was whether ethically do we cross that line already in Ireland. This is the the kind of double effect of, of morphine. And the question between us young GPs was whether or not escalating doses of morphine contribute to someone's demise earlier than than would have been expected. Palliative care consultant Stephen Higgins is adamant that this is not the case in Ireland. Euthanasia is specifically giving a drug with the very specific intention of shortening the person's life. That's your primary goal. We don't do that in palliative medicine. I've never done that in my practice. There's a widespread misunderstanding that the use particularly of opioid or morphine-based drugs will shorten your life. And there's pretty robust evidence that if you use these medications in appropriate doses, they don't shorten your life. At her home in Wexford, Kate continues her daily struggle. I'm not afraid of dying. And when I'm having a bad pain day, I will often say, God, how much more of this have I got to take? You know, I'll sit here and cry saying, I can't take any more. I really can't. 
I don't want my life prolonged. I want to die. Please let me die. However, she is able to continue one of her passions, reading. She's doing a sponsored readathon for charity. Even though it may be the last year of my life, I wanted to do something positive. So in the course of the year, I'm going to read 500 books. It's September, and I'm back with Gabriel Pilo at Harold's Cross. Hi, Daddy. How are you? Good. How's your weekend? His physio has come to visit him. How was your anniversary? Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. No man could ask for better. No man could ask for a better family. No man could have asked for a better day or night or evening. It was wonderful, wonderful. It's a few weeks since I've seen him and he has got his wish that he's lived to celebrate his 60th wedding anniversary with his beloved wife Bernadette and their large family. I was like a blooming royalty sitting in the seat and everybody was approaching me. Oh, may we speak to you, your highness, you know. <laughs> they talk about the first principle of medicine as being first do no harm and whether or not euthanasia flies in the face of that is, you know, is the question to answer but is doing nothing when somebody's suffering causing harm. You know, that's, again, another, another grey area, which is where we live in this documentary. <laughs> Legalising euthanasia is a societal change. It's much bigger than a medical issue. I think if you look at the direction of change across the world, it is towards euthanasia. But I suspect it will be legalised in Ireland at some point, and I would be nervous about that. And I think it would fundamentally change the nature of medicine as well. As a doctor, if I was offering euthanasia to my patients, I think that would change the dynamic of who I was and what the hospice was and what we do. I think it is changing the society and the ideas about death severely because it's more accepted in the society that people have their own choice in severe suffering. You know, there's two things with euthanasia. One is euthanasia for the individual, and you can certainly can see the merits for the individual case. But then when you look at it as a society, if we approve this, what does that say to older people? What does that say to people who are suffering but maybe don't want to go first? Does it tell them that their life is not worth living? I last met Gabriel Pilo in the Harold's Cross Hospice just over a month ago. It's been an up and down ride. That's it. Well, I'm delighted you got through the... because that was one of your main goals, was to be there for the anniversary. That was the main goal. Even if I live to be 100 now, it's something you wouldn't forget. I don't think I've any goals left now to achieve other than be with the family, you know. Yourself, what's all this in aid of it? I think it's an area that interests me. My own father passed away a few years ago and... He was looked after by the hospice um, very well <coughs> at home. He was at home, was he? Yeah, he was at, mainly at home. But I think it, it's a conversation we don't often have where we talk about... No, it's one that um, we should have. We really shouldn't be afraid to talk about these things, you mm. know. Earlier this month, on the 11th of October 2017, Gabriel Pilo died peacefully at home, cared for by his family and the palliative care team. The first time I met Franz, two years ago, I left thinking that the issue of euthanasia was relatively straightforward. I thought this is something we should be doing in Ireland. 
And I think on a case-by-case basis, I can see the benefits of euthanasia for those who suffer greatly. And there are people being left behind in Ireland today. However, I think there are dangers in introducing it at a societal level. And where do you draw the line? Or should you draw the line? Well, thank you, friends. Well, you're welcome, and I wish you a good trip. Now leaving Holland for the second time, these are questions I haven't found the answers to. Thank you very much, Franz. You're welcome. I've learned euthanasia is certainly not the solution for the vast majority of people. Most people want to die at home, but end up dying in an acute hospital or nursing home. And perhaps a better approach would be for us to normalise the conversation around your wishes towards the end of your life. Talking to your family, your friends, your doctors, your advanced care directive. These are conversations we need to start having at an early stage, difficult and all as they may seem.